0: Mark chapter 2, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read... What David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your throne this morning and... We're mindful of our need for grace. We need to see you afresh this morning from your word. We need to see you, the God who is full of compassion and kindness and mercy, the God who is with us even when we don't understand. Lord, this morning... We particularly want to lift up before you our sister Zil and the Chung family. Our hearts are breaking for them. Lord, we pray at at this time you would be their shepherd. You would be their ever present help in need. That you would be ministering to this family and surrounding them with your saints. Well, this morning, I need your help. I need your help to bring your word. Would you speak through your word this morning? I and mean, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I guess I've been, or this week, I've been reminded of fresh. Uh, about study and uh, about the uh, HSC. We have been, Charlotte and I have been on a study camp and uh, these kids are all studying the HSC and preparing for the HSC and as a result at this camp they do a compulsory seven hours of study a day. Now it may come as a surprise or for those that know me, no surprise to know that actually I would never have gone on this camp, this study camp. The reason being that... There's way too much time for socializing and not enough time for study. When I did the HSC, I was, um, I guess, true to my personality, uh, a little bit, how shall we say, uh, intense. Um, I used to, I have to confess now with with quite a deal of shame, I used to, during my HSC year, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'd go for a run, I'd come back home, I'd study, I'd go to school, I'd get to lunch, I'd go to the library, I'd study. I'd get home from school, I'd go straight to my bedroom and I'd study till the late hours of the day and and repeat all over again the next day. I was determined at that time to get into medicine and I was going to do anything it took to get there. Uh, As a result, or fortuitously, uh, I didn't get into medicine and I I found myself uh, studying physiotherapy. And in a way that I guess was the only way I knew how, I began to give myself again to study. I would study with every waking opportunity I had, studying, learning, memorizing, Um, even to the extent that during my later years when I was commuting uh, early hours of the morning to Cumberland Campus in Sydney from Wollongong in order to get to uni, uh, once or twice I found myself falling asleep at the wheel. I remember waking up as I was drifting into the median strip. Such was my fatigue and exhaustion. But yet, in God's kindness, in the end, I received my physiotherapy degree. The reason why I bring up my own personal story uh, is this we are used to earning our success. We're used to doing the hard yards, working hard, and as a result, earning our success. But the thing is, and the temptation that we all face, I believe, is that we can begin to think the same way when it comes to God, that we can earn our success with God. You know, as Christians, we can fall into this kind of good day, bad day mentality. When I'm having a good day, when I'm doing well, when I'm not falling into temptation, when I'm reading my Bible when I'm being kind to my parents and those that are around me, when I'm being generous and good, I'm having a good day. And I'm at the front of church and my hands are in the air and I'm praising God. God is pleased with me. It is right for me to praise Him. I'm having a good day. But equally, when things are not going so well, when I've slept in and missed the alarm and run late to church, when I've not been spending time reading and dwelling in God's Word, when I've been unkind and impatient with those that I love and care, I'm having a bad day. And because I'm having a bad day, I'm sitting at the back of church. I'm sitting at the back of church, and I'm not praising God. My hands are not in the air, and I'm thinking, God is surely just putting up with me. I only just made the cut, and he surely is probably just kind of slightly disappointed. It's a good day. It's a bad day. Even if you're not a Bible believing person in here t- today, but you believe in an afterlife, we can fall into the same way of thinking as well. You can easily believe that you'll go to heaven because you're a good person, because you've done pretty good things. You're not as bad as other people out there, and so you should be all right. Well, in the Bible, we have a name for this kind of thinking, and we call it legalism the belief that. We can earn favor from God by doing good things. Well, in verse 22 that Patrick preached so well last week, we looked and we saw that times are changing. That Jesus is bringing in this new era, a new era of new wine, a new era of uh, era of celebration. And so, this morning, our message for those that are taking notes is entitled "The Lord of the Sabbath." And I really have two points, two quick points. That is the legalists and the liberator. But really one point, because, you know, I'm a simple guy. I like to bang on about one thing. And um, so one point today. And that is that Jesus shows us that the God of grace wants our hearts and not our religion. The God of grace, Jesus shows us, wants our hearts and not our religion. By religion, I mean following rules and traditions to please God. Ticking off boxes and following laws in order to please God. This is what I mean by religion. God doesn't want this from us. What he wants is our hearts. You know, if you're someone here who's living this way, God's going to have a message for us in Jesus, which is, this is not the kind of thing I want. Well, let's get stuck into our first point this morning, and that is the legalists. Uh, Just by way of context, Jesus has started his ministry, and he's faced multiple controversies. Multiple controversies. Firstly, he claims to forgive sin in chapter 2, and reveals himself to be a friend of sinners. He's not fasting when everyone else is fasting, and now he's challenging people's understanding of the Sabbath. It will culminate at the end of our passage in... People plotting his death, plotting to kill him in response. So why don't we begin reading from the start of our passage, verse 23 and 24. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Picture the scene with me. Jesus is with His disciples. they're walking through a field, and they're plucking these heads of grain and eating them as they go past. Now the issue here is not that they're stealing. You know, the Bible explicitly says in Deuteronomy 23:25, that that's permitted. You're allowed to go through someone's field and just pick at the heads of grain um, to eat if you're hungry. That's permitted. That's not stealing. The reason why these guys are criticizing, these Pharisees are criticizing Jesus is that they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath is a word that comes from uh, a group of words in Hebrew that means to cease, to stop, or to finish. It refers to the fourth commandment, which is to rest on the seventh day of the week. God commands in Deuteronomy 5, and he says, to, he says this, he says, I want everyone to rest I want your sons, your daughters, your servants, your livestock, your guests. I want everyone to rest on the Sabbath. Because the Bible teaches that work and rest, they belong together. You see, in Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he models a pattern in doing it of work and rest. In Genesis uh, 2.2, which should be coming up on your screen, uh, it says this, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Literally in the Bible, it says, and God Sabbathed. God rested. It's not that he needs to. It's not that God somehow was weary and tired after, you know, a long week of working. It's more that he's modeling for us a pattern of work and rest. Well, The question is, what was the Sabbath all about in the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament teach about the Sabbath? Like, what's the purpose and point? What was it all about? Well, firstly, it was obviously an opportunity for rest, for rest and refreshment of the body. In Exodus 31, Moses teaches this. He says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. What is it? It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in 6 days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the 7th day he rested and was refreshed Did you catch that It's meant to be a sign it's meant to point to something it's meant to point to the fact that work and rest belong together It's meant to be about rest and refreshment of the body But secondly more than that it's a reminder that it's God is the one who saved them and is changing them Further on, or slightly before, actually, that passage, God says this through Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. What's the sign about? That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Isn't that neat? Isn't that a beautiful promise? Why rest? Why rest? It's a sign that, God says, I'm making you holy. It's a sign that I'm calling you out of slavery from Egypt, and I'm making you and forming you into my people. And it's a sign for you that I am the one that's doing it. You work all these days, but on this day, I want you to rest, and I want you to remember that this is not your doing. You're not part of my people because somehow you deserve to be there. You're part of my people because I am the one that sanctifies you. I am the one that has called you out to be part of my people. I'm the one that's changing you. I'm the one that's molding you. And so you need to stop working and rest because there's nothing you can do to add to it. That's God's message in Sabbath. It's that God is the one who's saved them and is changing them. Lastly, though, it's not just refreshment for the body. It's not just remembering that God has saved them and is changing them. It's more than that. It's a time of worship. In Deuteronomy, in Moses' second speech, um, he unpacks about the Sabbath and he he shows the people of God that uh, they're meant to remember what God has done for them time and time again on the Sabbath, saving them from slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 15, 15, he says this. He says, "'You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt.'" And the Lord your God redeemed you. He paid the price for you. He took you out. Therefore, I command you this, that is Sabbath, today. And as they remember what God has done for them, they're meant to worship God on this day. They're meant to worship him. And the two ways that, that, that Moses highlights specifically that they're meant to worship God is firstly in celebration. In chapter 14, uh, Moses has this really cool picture where he's like, right, This is the day, you know, you're going to bring your tithes to the temple. And you know what? If your tithes, because they're farming people, they're probably like wheat and grain and all this sort of stuff. If if it's so much, a tithe for you is so much, 10% is so much, you can't carry it, then what I want you to do is sell it right where you are, get the money. I want you to go up to where the, the tabernacle is, the tent of meeting is. And what I want you to do is I want you to buy up food and wine and all this sort of stuff. And I want you to get your family together and have a big party. How cool is that? I want you to celebrate. I want you to use the Sabbath as a celebration. But secondly, more than that, it's about worshipping God through not only celebrating, but also through care. See, the Levites, who depend on them, uh, are meant to be provided for at length, Moses explains, on the Sabbath. Slaves every seven years on the Sabbath are meant to be set free with generous gifts, The poor. Moses specifically addresses them about the poor and says, guys, on the Sabbath, don't be callous or stingy with the poor. Be generous with them. See, the Sabbath is about stopping to remember what God has done for us and responding in worship. That's what the Sabbath was all about in the Old Testament. But here's the problem. The Pharisees had made the Sabbath all about following detailed laws. You see, originally the Sabbath command, the ceasing command, it just meant... Stop your usual job. Stop doing your usual work and, and have a time of rest and remembrance for God, of God. But they had replaced this simple command with the 30 li- 39 laws of Mishnah, rabbinic teaching, all about what constitutes work. There were things in the law like don't carry anything from one place to another. If your house was collapsed, you're allowed to look through the rubble for survivors, that's okay. But if you found that bodies were there and they were dead, you had to stop. You couldn't do any more work. If you dislocated a limb, because it's not a survival issue, you were not allowed to put it back into place. That would constitute work. I was just thinking about you, brother Ben Bridges, mate, dislocated thumb. Whole day, if it was on the Sabbath, you would have to leave that thumb dislocated until the end of the Sabbath. I mean, it's crazy. No plucking heads of grain was another law in the Mishnah. That would constitute reaping, which is work, which is not permitted on the Sabbath. So when we read the Pharisees ask the question, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, really we should read why are they doing what is not lawful by our rules on the Sabbath. That's the real heart of the issue. They have placed their laws above God's laws. Well, before we move on to see Jesus' response, I reckon we need to pause at this point and see ourselves here. You know, we stray into being like Pharisees, I believe, anytime we become more passionate about law-keeping in gray areas than radical faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we can call it wise living, And oftentimes it is. But if we become more passionate about people following rules for wise living and trusting in Jesus, we are in real danger, I believe. You see, I have a confession this morning and uh, that is I'm a person prone to legalism. But God has been helping me You see, when I was a younger guy, I remember being at a party with some Christian friends and uh, all these guys were out the back smoking and I just lost it. I was like, you guys smoking? Like, who do you think you are? You call yourselves Christians and here you are at this party smoking and the Bible doesn't say anything about smoking. These are rules of Christian culture and I'm a guy prone to legalism. Another illustration would be a friend of mine who made a decision I felt quite quickly without counsel to move to Queensland, to pick up his life and move to Queensland. And I was personally offended. I thought, how dare you make that decision without consulting me? I'm I'm your friend. Like, I feel like I should be involved in that. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about us having to consult every friend every time we make a decision. That's not a rule in the Bible. But here I was, angry with my friend, based on something that is a wisdom issue. It's not a sin issue. Every time we get more passionate about gray areas than God's Word and passion for Jesus Christ, we are straying into the land of Pharisees. If we're more passionate about any area of wise living, whether that be health and immunization, whether that be exercise or being free of exercise, whether that be IVF, smoking, non-smoking, alcohol or teetotaling, vegetarian, vegan, paleo, sugar-free, high-fat, low-fat, sugar-based like our pasta. (laughs) Just a matter of fact education, whether it be home education, Christian education, private or public education, whether it be work, stay-at-home mum, full-time working, kids in childcare, whether it be dress, hipster, skinny jeans, preppy, how short is too short, how tight is too tight, and that's just for the boys. (laughs) Anytime we stray into the gray and find ourselves more passionate about gray areas than we are about radical faith in Jesus Christ, We are in danger. You know, uh, just thinking on this week, it reminded me of a person, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who was part of this church many, many years ago, and uh, we nicknamed him The Coach. And uh, this guy was nicknamed The Coach. He hated the nickname The Coach. Um, And the reason why he was called The Coach is, is because he had a catchphrase that he used to always say when you came to him for advice and that was listen buddy here's what you got to do and then would come the counsel, and um, so we called him the coach all the time and he absolutely hated it but thinking about it this week I'm so often prone to being exactly like the coach you know you need to do this and this and this this is what is going to help you as if I know best As if rule-keeping is what will really help this person most. What we all need, most of all, is more of Jesus in our lives. What we need most is more faith, more grace. He wants our hearts, most of all, not our law-keeping, not our religion. The question really is, what does trusting Jesus more look like for you? That's the real question, isn't it? What does loving Jesus more look like for you? And we can live as though through following rules we can give or be most helpful. And that way of living, it's helpful in sport but not in pleasing God. Kent Hughes puts it this way and I think this is such a beautiful line it's so true. He calls this way of thinking the domestication of faith into humanly attainable standards. Taking faith and trusting God and replacing it with things that we can do. That's all of our disposition. We like to take faith in Jesus Christ, and we like to swap it for keeping rules. We're proud people, and we want to be able to contribute something, contribute something to God, so we swap faith for things that we can do. Well, how does Jesus respond to these legalists, these law keepers, these Pharisees? Well, let's read on, verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus retells a story that comes from 1 Samuel. And here David, who is yet to be king, and his followers they're running from Saul who's out to kill him and they're running for their lives and they're starving and they come to the tent of meeting. And when they come to the tent of meeting, Ahimelech, who's the father of Abiathar, takes some of the bread of the presence, which is 12 loaves of bread that were put every Sabbath into the tent of meeting and then replaced weekly by the priest, these 12 loaves of bread and eaten by the priests and permitted to be eaten by the priests only. He takes this bread and he gives it to David and his disciples, his followers. And Jesus' point is this. He's saying God didn't criticize David for breaking the rules to meet his need. He didn't criticize him. Why? Because it's not about dotting the eyes. This is a God of mercy and grace. This is a God of Compassion. God wasn't concerned in that moment when these guys were starving about nitty-gritty law-keeping. He loved David. He loved David's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. But Jesus is saying something even greater than that. He's saying, but someone even greater than David is here. Someone ushering in an era of new wine is here, and this is cause for celebration. You know, in recounting exactly the same uh, incident in Matthew's Gospel, In Matthew 12, verse 7, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6.6 in this passage. And that word mercy really means steadfast love. Steadfast love. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says this. He says, if you would have known what this means, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, not keeping rules, not religious observance, you wouldn't have condemned these people who are innocent. You see, Jesus is saying that God is after your heart. God is after steadfast love. He wants you to love him and others He doesn't want just mindless obedience. God wants you to treat others with mercy and steadfast love, not to be the fun police. That's what God wants for us. But secondly, Jesus goes on to say the Sabbath is actually God's gift to us. Read verse 27. Jesus says this, and he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift, Jesus says. It's an opportunity to find rest and refreshment for your body. It's a reminder that God is the one who saved you and he's the one that's changing you. It's a time for worship and praise to God. Equally for us as Christians, you know, it's good to Sabbath. It's good to have a day or multiple times throughout the week where you rest. And I think for us, it's a gift that's worth consideration. We live in a crazy busy city and there's endless opportunities. There's opportunity after opportunity. I mean, don't you find yourself just sometimes just, just feeling completely overwhelmed with how many things are going on and thinking to yourself, when will I find rest? Sabbath is made for us. It's a gift. And so we don't need to get uptight about it. But we can know and rest in the fact that it's a gift for us to use. A gift and not a burden. But thirdly, and most importantly, Jesus says this in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even, even of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, there was a rabbinic saying around at Jesus' time, which was there was only one person who could really break the Sabbath, and that is God himself. Because even when everyone else is resting, God is still at work as the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps, upholding the universe And the world and everything that's in it. And Jesus comes and he says, Do you know what, guys? That's me. I am God. I am the one who gave you Sabbath as a gift. And I'm the Lord over everything, including the Sabbath. Well, in our first scene, Jesus comes face to face with legalists on the Sabbath. His message to them is that God is after your heart, not just your obedience to religious laws. He's after steadfast love and he's after mercy not just rule-keeping. More, the one who made the Sabbath is here. Well, that's point one. The legalists Point two, the liberator. You see, now Mark moves to his second scene where Jesus is going to do something radical. He's going to confront these legalists head-on. Why don't you read with me chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It's a Sabbath, and here is a man with a withered hand, a wasted hand, a man with paralysis. You know, working as a physio, we see this all the time. Someone suffers a stroke or some sort of nerve injury, and the hand tends to curl up in the Fists close and become very stiff, and the muscles in and around the palm and the fingers they waste away, becoming almost skeletal. And there's a man here with a withered hand. And the religious leaders are there, and they've heard that that Jesus had healed before on the Sabbath. In chapter 1, on the Sabbath, he healed a demon possessed man. Also, on the Sabbath, he healed Simon's mother in law. And they're watching him closely. They're watching him closely to accuse him. Literally, it says, to build a case against him. And he'd confronted them four times already. And this is what Jesus does. He does this in verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Literally, he says, Get up, stand in front of everyone. I want you to notice something here. No one had ever, or Jesus, sorry, had never been asked to heal this man. No one had come to him and said, could you heal this man on the Sabbath? No, this is the only time where Jesus initiates a healing. This is completely of the Savior's own initiative. No one has come to him and asked him to heal. He is Initiating the healing on the Sabbath in front of everyone. Why? He's confronting them. Let's read on. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, says Jesus, good or evil? If they'd read their Bibles properly, the answer would have been obvious. It's good. Good is allowed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was all about worship. What is permittable on the Sabbath, saving life or killing it? Why does he say this? Why does he ask this? Jesus in this moment knows exactly what they're thinking that they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him and kill him. And so he's confronting them. And the Pharisees, completely silent. They have lost the argument. They have nothing to say, but they are not in any way consenting to what takes place. Read verse 5 with me. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus looks around in anger. He sees the injustice of what they're doing in this moment. He sees the foolishness of it or They are waiting for a miracle. They are waiting for a miracle so that they can accuse him and condemn him to death. A miracle to condemn him. A miracle to condemn him. What? This is, this is foolishness. They know he's a miracle worker and they're waiting for him to break their laws so that they can kill him. Their focus is such on legal detail that they have completely forgotten about mercy and about grace. And I want to pause again and allow the weight of that to just sit on us. Because I believe this is a warning to us about the the blinding nature of sin. These religious leaders, Mark says, have hard hearts. The heart in the Bible, it's not just your feelings, but it's also your mind. It's the inner you. And, And he's using a word picture here. It's a Hebrew word picture. It's saying an inner you which is like a rock. You squeeze it and nothing happens. We're not talking about being callous and uncaring. We're talking about a person who won't change. We're talking about a person who resists God's will and purpose, a person who is spiritually blind. And the Pharisees are hard-hearted. They are so blind, they are waiting for a miracle to trap him. And the Savior looks around and he is grieved. You see, friends, sin is truly blinding. We can easily read this passage and think, these Pharisees, they are idiots. What are they thinking? And yet we are not Jesus in this passage. We are most like the Pharisees. You see, Jesus had no form or beauty that we should admire him. We would have rejected him if we were there. We all naturally try and rely on our works to please God. Sin is truly blinding. The natural state of all of us is spiritually dead. I mean, have you ever seen a corpse? Have you ever stood over a corpse and tried to instruct that corpse to trust in God? It's impossible. And so it is with us. How can a corpse see? This is us. This is us without Jesus, trying to make it in life by our own efforts and failing. How does Jesus respond? He is angry and he is grieved. Let's let's read on. Stretch out your hand, he says. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to heal him. Jesus does this amazing miracle. Just by his simple word, this man stretches out his hand and complete restoration of that hand. And what happens next is astounding. The Pharisees and Herodians who hate each other. See, Pharisees were about religious law-keeping. The Herodians had loyalty primarily to Herod and the whole uh, governance structure overseen by the Romans. The Pharisees hated the Romans. The Herodians hated the Pharisees. And yet in this moment, we see this unity, unity around killing jesus and the irony of it all the religious leaders who are condemning jesus for a miracle on the sabbath now go to break their own laws by doing work and meeting together to plot not good but evil oh, the irony of it all these men are so completely blind in this moment well why did jesus initiate this miracle Why did Jesus confront these men in this moment? Jesus had not been asked. He instigated. This is his initiative, but why? The answer is he knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows their blindness. But he is heading to the cross. You see, we all are like the Pharisees and blind to our sin. Caught in folly, folly, and dead to God, and that didn't cause God to turn away from us. It didn't cause God to reject us. It didn't cause us to leave us in our rebellion and brokenness away from Him. It caused Him to send His very own Son for us. It caused Him to send His Son, who in this moment was walking towards the cross. And as they would go to arrest him, and as they would go to mock him and beat him and nail him to the cross, it was our sin that held him there. It was our blindness and our folly that held him there until it was accomplished. You see, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he came and he died to give us true Sabbath. Rest from doing good works to please God. Spiritual rest. He is the liberator. As Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He was born to die. That's why he came. For legalists who have rejected him, he came to die for them, to be their liberator, to set them free. He knows that they're blind. He knows that they can't see, but he's not deterred. He's grieved, but he presses on towards the cross. This is amazing grace, the grace of our amazing liberator, the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, how should we respond? How can we avoid the sin of the Pharisees? Well, the answer is, quite simply, by looking to the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, legalism for us seeps in slowly. It seeps in slowly, undetected and unseen into our lives. And our hearts are hardened without without us even noticing. We need to recognize its presence in our lives. And I just felt this morning three areas that I wanted to pause and press on so that we can turn and look to the one who gives us rest. The first area and first sign that we are straying into legalism is when we stray into the gray. When our primary passion is not Jesus Christ, not radically loving others, but following rules, we we want to keep the gospel central. Ways of dressing, types of worship, lifestyle choices, even types of ministry You know, God wants us to radically love Him and love others. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we most passionate about? What would our friends say? Are we looking to the Lord of the Sabbath? Are we focusing on loving Him and others? When we stray into the grace. Secondly, when we fail to to treat others with grace. You know, we can begin to hold people to standards that we don't even keep ourselves and forget that we're sinners. We can be more aware of the failures in others or the church than areas of grace and where God is working. We can hold people's sins against them rather than forgiving them, forgetting the gospel. You know, so easily I do this personally. You know, the classic example is, you know, me judging someone for not coming to church. I remember some time ago... um, someone who I'd been praying for wasn't at church, and I just found myself frustrated. I thought, here we go again. Clearly doesn't love the Lord. Clearly a a difficult brother, still in persistent sin. I mean, you might laugh at that and think the self-righteousness of it all, but I was convicted when I found out they'd been really ill, and that was the reason they hadn't been attending. You see, when we fail to treat others with grace, we are straying into the sin of the Pharisees. And we need to look to the Lord of the Sabbath, that we were Pharisees, but he purchased us by his blood. Thirdly and finally, and in closing, we need to live like God treats us when we live like God treats us based on our performance. So even this morning, I think some of us are aware of your failures. You come here with a deep conviction of failures and you've been holding back in worship because you've fallen into a good day, bad day mentality. Well, friends, grace should amaze us every day. There should not be a day when grace is not amazing. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I'm after steadfast love, not obedience to the law. We need to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the Lord of the Sabbath and all that he has done for us, that he died for us to purchase us true Sabbath rest, rest from dead works to please God. Well, Jesus shows us that the God of grace wants our hearts and not our religion. He wants not following rules and traditions to please Him, but a heart that loves Him with everything. So what better way to respond than by worship, by expressing our love for Him? I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm just going to pray for us uh, as we close. Lord, this morning, we just come before your throne again just freshly reminded of our need for grace. Lord, there's so many ways in which we fail. There's so many ways in which we fail to even keep our own standards, let alone your standards, God, what you would have for us. And yet... How good is it to know that you're a God of grace, a God of mercy, that you love us despite our failings. Lord, you are good. And you're you're merciful. And you're kind. And you're full of compassion. Lord, I, I just pray that there wouldn't be a soul here this morning that doesn't know your grace. Lord, forgive us for when we're prone to wander, prone to, prone to be legalists like these Pharisees. Lord, we, we, it's not our heart. We want to worship you. Give us grace. Help us to look to the Lord of the Sabbath and we pray it in his name. Amen.